What's up, everyone? Welcome to our Midcast News Midcast live stream. Very excited to have you all join us today. Uh, we have a very special guest joining us who just arrived back in the United States from Syria. Um, but before I introduce him, uh, I would like to start our live stream as we do every single time, which is to ask everybody who is joining us and watching to help us beat social media algorithms and censorship and suppression by sharing this live stream. Um, so let's get started. Um, my name is Manar Mohawash Adli. I'm the founder and editor-in-chief of Mint Press News, and I am your host today for this Mintcast live stream. So amid a decade-long uh, war that has devastated the country, Syrians went to the polls last week in an election that gave another seven-year term to current president and leader Bashar al-Assad with a turnout of over 78%. Um, Assad achieved an overwhelming victory against his nearest opponent, Mahmoud Ahmad Marai. While friendly nations such as Russia, Iran, and China endorsed the results, they were completely rejected as a sham election by Western nations, including the United States, uh, with states' opinions on the elections closely aligned to which faction they backed in the Syrian civil war. Here to talk to me today and share his firsthand experience of the events is Daniel uh, Kovalik. Daniel is a human rights lawyer and adjunct professor at, of law at the University of Pittsburgh. He's a prolific author. Dan's work in activism has taken him around the world, including to Colombia and Venezuela, and he's currently in Syria where he observed the elections firsthand. Dan, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Always glad to be here. Um, first, let's talk about the elections. Mm -hmm. um, you know, give us your own reaction to the elections and what you saw, what, what took place? So first of all, you know, some interesting background. Uh, first of all, thousands of people turned out outside Syria to vote at various Syrian embassies around the world, uh, which I think is an interesting thing because, you know, people can't claim that those people were somehow coerced by Assad to vote, right? Those people went I mean, they don't even live in Syria anymore, and they went to vote. So I think that's an interesting uh, fact. That all happened uh, before the day of the election. Uh, in addition, I just want to say um, that you know the U.S. still occupies one third of Syria, and I don't think anyone voted for them to be there. Okay, so these claims of concern of democracy by the West in the U.S. is kind of a joke. Mm -hmm. Aside from that, what I witnessed was incredible enthusiasm for the election, before the election, uh, during the election, and after the election. I mean, people were literally dancing in the streets. Fireworks went off after the election at my hotel, looking down from the balcony. Just, you know, huge traffic jams of people honking their horns and waving the Syrian flag. Um. I went to a couple polling places, saw people vote, saw my friend Johnny Ache. He led our delegation. He came all the way from uh, San Antonio, Texas to vote. Um, and from what I could tell, people went there willingly and, and excitedly. Um, and by the way, I knew people who didn't vote. Uh, mm -hmm. our, our two drivers didn't vote, okay? And they said they exercised their right not to vote. And they work for the Ministry of Information, right? And you can tell if someone voted or not because they 
They didn't vote. They don't have a purple mark on their finger. They didn't seem concerned that they were going to be fired or somehow persecuted. The point is, from my point of view, people willingly and happily went to the polls. And also from my – again, what I could see – and this is anecdotal. Again, I can't, I, I can't speak for how votes were counted. I didn't see votes counted. Okay, I, I don't know. Uh, I can't – I didn't go to every city. I went to several. You know, I, I can't speak for everyone. But what I saw and what I heard from people is they saw these elections as a referendum on Syrian independence. And on peace, an end to ten years of war, which was a world war. Can I? Can we just call it a world war that involved the United States, Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, Israel, right. Russia, Turkey, Iran? This was a world war that happened in one country. Cities were devastated. We went to Duma and Jobar. Jobar is 96% destroyed. It's rubble. Duma is largely rubble. By the way, it's interesting that Assad went to Duma and voted there. You know, he made a point to go to this war-torn city to vote, which I think is symbolic. Great. Um, and it's not a place, you know, that is particularly hospitable. I mean, again, it's it's it's, it's ruins. Um, and yet, and yet, people are resolved to go about their lives to rebuild the country, um, to have peace, to get rid of the foreign occupiers, the U.S. and Turkey specifically, that again are. Are, are occupying the most oil-rich one-third of the country. Right. And again, no one voted for them. Can I reiterate that? No one voted for those people to be there. Um, the idea that the U.S. is supporting democracy in, in, um, in Syria or anywhere else is a joke. What I, I believe, and I, I, get, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but after being there, and I've thought about this for a while, but after being there for a while and going, for example, to Malula, which is one of the few places in the world that still speaks Aramaic, the language of Jesus, okay, and these beautiful churches, right? When the Free Syrian Army that the U.S. backed went into Malula, they tried to, first of all, burn the city to the ground. They couldn't because it's made out of stone, thank God. But they burned the trees. They burned the forest to the ground. You see for all, you know, stretches of miles, all you can see are saplings, little trees that are being replanted because the U.S.-backed Free Syria Army, which is neither free nor Syrian, discuss amongst yourselves, burned the forest to the ground. They invaded the main church there, this beautiful church, they killed nuns. They stole icons, religious, ancient religious icons. This is a nihilistic project, can I tell you? This, that, that's what this is. This is not a project to create anything. This is a project to destroy, just like they destroyed Iraq. They destroyed Libya. 
They destroyed Afghanistan. Uh, they've tried to destroy Syria. They've destroyed huge parts of Lebanon. They've destroyed Gaza. This is a wrecking ball is what this is. This is not democracy promotion. Had, had, had the free Syrian army or, or any of the umpteen different terrorist groups that were backed by all kinds of players, the U.S., Israel, the UAE, Saudi Arabia, Turkey, had they taken over? Let me just be clear. They would have set up a repressive caliphate, which they did in a number of towns, so we know what they would do, and that was they would impose their bizarre religion, if you want to call it that, because it is not Islam. It is some heretical version of it. They were cutting people's heads off for the smallest infractions, raping women, uh, imprisoning people, forcing them to build their tunnels. Again, destroying ancient artifacts, ancient ruins all over the country, but in particular in Palmyra, in Aleppo. Uh, I believe it was in Palmyra where there was a, a museum that the curator there Uh, As the terrorists were taking over, he, at the risk of his own life, which he lost to the terrorists, ultimately, he hid a number of artifacts from them to try to save them. And let's remember in Iraq, when the U.S. invaded, which was compared to the sacking of Iraq by the Mongols in 1235, I believe it was, A.D., um, you had all this, you know, looting of ancient artifacts from Iraq. Some, as we know, ended up in the hands of Hobby Lobby. You you know that, right? The crazy right-wing Hobby Lobby ended up with a lot of these artifacts. What we're seeing, again, is, is an attempt to destroy culture, an attempt to destroy a whole people, ancient civilizations. Again, they would destroy Iran in the same way. Um, and people went to the polls to say, that's it, we don't want this anymore. There were Syrians, certainly, who joined um, joined some of these terrorist groups. Okay, they some joined because they got money, fifty to hundred dollars a day, which is a lot for a Syrian. Some joined for religious reasons because they thought these people represented some form of Islam. Again, I, I think, loosely speaking, at best, did they do so? Others joined because they didn't like the government. But ultimately, when people saw what these groups, these terrorist groups, and that's what they were, when they saw what they were about, when they saw what they were doing, they quickly said, okay, this is insane. We don't want this. And they welcomed the Syrian military to liberate their cities. And that's how they viewed it. And that's how they view it now. And and to Assad, to his credit, whatever you say about him, he invited people, Syrians who joined those terrorist groups, if they wanted to, to return to the community. And if they didn't, he actually uh, gave them the choice to go to Idlib, which is still being, you know, uh, run uh, by, um, or at least at that time was being run by some of these groups. Now I think it's mostly being run by Turkey and the U.S. and and the Kurds. Um, And a lot of people did come back. And again, a lot of people now, um really uh 
do see the government as their government, as their legitimate government. And I think that's what this vote represents. I guess that's my long way of saying that. Right. Well, and I'm glad that you kind of broke down the entire crisis and why that is so representative and symbolic to the voting that took place in Syria last week. Because it's so important to contextualize uh, the crisis in Syria that has been basically a victim and a target of Western imperialism and modern day colonialism where the United States, Saudi Arabia, Israel, Turkey, Qatar, um, where they were arming uh, these rebels and funding them, um, sometimes even quarreling with each other, but they ended up completely destroying Syria. And yes. so, so like you just described, people went to the voting polls uh, and voted in Assad more as a rejection uh, of these uh, of that foreign policy led by the United States. Um, you know, you mentioned Duma, which I think is so important to talk about. Tell me why the city of Duma is significant. What took place there? I know you kind of briefly mentioned that. What took place there and what you saw when you went there? So, again, first, when you got, come into the city, you see, you just see buildings in ruin. It looks like something you might imagine from World War II. You know, burnt right. the city level, you know. Um, but what's important about Duma, of course, is that it was the site of an alleged chemical attack that was blamed on Assad uh, that became the pretext for bombings by the United States. Um, but which, you know, as time has gone by, I think it's been pretty, you know, uh, uh, dispositively proven that there was no chemical attack that this was staged by um, the terrorists that had taken over the town. We visited the field hospital that the terrorists had set up. This is where they brought children and others to stage this fake chemical attack. And there are tunnels leading right into it, okay? Terrorist tunnels leading right into this, which, which certainly make it, very dubious as to what was happening there. But various people, Robert Fisk, the great late Robert Fisk, uh, very you know, le legitimate journalist, went there, believed it was set up, it was staged, the tunnels were used to bring people in to stage this chemical attack. <coughs> there are people from the, uh, the UN uh, chemical uh, warfare organization i'm forgetting all the 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 acronym opcw yeah. yeah who said that that it never happened right. who said that the ultimate the report that said it did was a sham uh you know there are a lot of people now speaking out about this again it's clear to me it didn't happen it was a lie um it was a lie designed to justify, you know, uh, continued intervention in the country by the United States and by the West. And um, what's incredible to me is that you have a Robert Fist saying this. You have people from the OPCW saying this. You had a major UN event where people testified about this. Um, and there's no mainstream press coverage of this. The mainstream press... Can, you know, pushed hard the idea that there, you know, Assad engaged in a chemical attack on Duma, and they have not 
even aired the other side, which is a very credible other side, to say the least. Uh, so I think Duma is, is, is kind of ground zero for the big lie that the West has been telling about Syria. And why should we be surprised? I mean, again, like people, oh, you're a conspiracy theorist. Yeah, well, Gulf of Tonkin was a lie that justified the Vietnam War, right? The chemicals, of, you know, uh, the, the, the weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, we know was a big lie. Um, you know, we know that they lied about Libya and the Viagra, the alleged Viagra given to troops to engage in mass rapes. That never happened. The black mercenaries brought in by Gaddafi were turned out to be uh, uh, guest workers or, or black people who just happen to live there. We're lied to about every single war. You know, why aren't people like, why every time the next lie is told, are they so quick to buy it? And so quick to call those who question the lie conspiracy theorists. Well, we had some pretty good salespeople, Dan, if you if you remember correctly. Uh, the war in Syria was really waged by the United States and its Western allies and Gulf allies and Israeli allies under the Obama administration, uh, the charming face of imperialism. Yeah, well, Obama, yeah, let's talk a little bit about St. Barack Obama, because people love this guy. Um you know, and, and, and I'll just say that I voted for him in 2008. I, I, I welcomed having the first black president. I cried when he was elected, cried tears of joy, as many people did here and around the world. You know, I welcomed him coming in. I thought he would be a person of peace, at least compared to others. And, of course, so did the Nobel you know, Peace Prize uh, uh, people because they gave him a peace prize nine months into his tenure before he – could even do anything, though he had already killed a lot of people by then, but putting that aside. Um, but he turned out to be about as bad or worse than any president. Uh, I would say he was worse for a country like Syria, certainly Libya, um, than Trump was. Uh, the, you know, Syria, the war, um, Really, the, the lion's share of it happened during Obama's presidency. Now, in all fairness, this war was planned way before him. You know, let's be clear about this. This was not a spontaneous operation. I, 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 every time I talk about Syria, I tell people, read Seymour Hersh's article, The Redirection, from 2007 mm -hmm. in The New Yorker. 2007, saying that the U.S., in 2005, was already working with terrorists in Syria. This thing didn't happen as a spontaneous thing in Syria. This was planned. Okay? And, but with that said, it was Obama that carried out the plan. And Biden, as vice president, would admit in 2014 that there were no moderate rebels. You know, he had to apologize for this later, but he was speaking the truth. He said, there's no moderate rebels. He said all of our allies were, you know, funding and and transporting and su supporting all these terrorist groups in Syria. You can look at this. The Washington Post reported on this. This is not. A conspiracy theorist. There was a conspiracy. I'm sorry. You know, there was, but it's not a theory. It was a reality. And Obama became 
the overseer of the destruction of Syria, as he was the overseer of the destruction of Libya. And, you know, so this idea that Obama is some saint is a joke. I mean, he, he should be in The Hague. He should be in jail in The Hague. Um, with Biden, with Hillary Clinton, with Samantha Power, Susan Rice, they should all be sharing a cell um, in The Hague, um, an all-gender cell, you know, because I want them to have a very woke experience there in The Hague. Um, That's what should be happening. Instead, they're going to build statues to these people. That's just a fact. So, <laughs> excuse me. I'm holding it in the laughter. Excuse me for my sarcasm. No, no, we can use a little bit of laughter when we talk right. about all these, you know, um, horrific, horrific war crimes that are being committed by these Western powers. Yes. Um, so let's talk a little bit about comparing Syria's elections with those of others. Of other elections that you've observed, you've observed elections in uh, Colombia and in Venezuela. How do the elections in Venezuela, com- or I'm sorry, in Syria, compare? And if you can talk a little bit about the mainstream media coverage versus like the reality on the ground. Yeah, well, first, if if, if you don't mind, if I can compare it to the elections in the United States. I oh, even, even better. That. Let's do that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And I'll start with a quote from former President uh, Jimmy Carter that um, um, the U.S. does not have a functional democracy. Okay, and that's true. Um, First of all, you start with the proposition that you have 50 states who vote that they all have a different system. Okay, there's no uniform system for voting in this country, which is completely bizarre, right? You also start with the proposition that we've now had two, two presidents uh, in the last 20 years who were uh, elected, though they lost the popular vote because of the outdated electoral college, right? And then you talk about the millions of people who have been disenfranchised wrongly. Um, You talk about the fact that money... Uh, is what rules the elections. We have the greatest democracy money can buy. Um, So first of all, the U.S. shouldn't be telling anyone about democracy is it? because we don't have a democratic system. Now, if we want to talk about Venezuela, Venezuela, as Jimmy Carter said in 2012, has the very best electoral system in the world. I know a lot about Venezuela's system, much more than I do about Syria's. Um, And I can tell you, it is a reliable, verifiable system, nearly fail-proof, because you have, first of all, a uniform system throughout the country. They use these sophisticated electronic systems. You can't even vote unless you show your fingerprint and ID, okay? Um, So it guarantees one person, one vote. Uh... And then you do an electronic vote, and then that prints a paper receipt, and you put that in a box so you can actually check the, the, the electronic vote with a paper receipt. It's an incredible system. Um, Colombia is, is, is closer to 
um, to um, series in that it's it's a pure paper b- ballot that's collected in a box and then counted, you know, manually. Um, which I don't think is a bad system. Most countries in the world use that system. I, I frankly think it's a better system than what the U.S. has. Where again, first of all, you have um, you have so many different systems throughout the country. You had the hanging chads in Florida in 2000. But here you have a lot of electronic systems in states that are not verifiable with a paper. With paper. I mean, you honestly don't know what's happening. I'm not saying that it's that 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 the the machines are fraudulent or not working, but all I'm saying is you really can't know. You can't really verify it one way or another. Um, I think the paper ballots are much more reliable, and that that's what they have in Iran. Uh, I mean, sorry, in Syria, I'm getting. Uh, and so, for what I could see, and again, I I can only tell you what I could see, but what I could see at the polling places was a very reliable system and what can i tell you something else <clears throat> if you as you might know if you vote um you can only vote in one place right you're told where to vote at your church next you know uh, in your neighborhood or school in syria you can vote anywhere you could be on vacation at around you know at the other end of the country from where you live and you can vote anywhere as long as you have your id Right, so it's very – it really encourages voting. Again, you don't even have to be in the country. If you can find uh, an embassy that's open um, in your country you're at, you can go vote there. So um, it, it really encourages people to vote. And, uh, of course, whereas in the U.S. you're generally discouraged from voting. Now, the mail ballot system that, that, that became – prominent during COVID, if that stays, hopefully that will change that, you know. But at the moment, or certainly for many, many years, uh, it's it's been a chore to vote here, to register and, and whatnot. Again, in, in Syria, you don't even have to register. If you have your state ID, you just go vote wherever you wherever you happen to be. Um, so, look, I think to that extent, um, it's a good system. Now, you know, we should just say, I mean, again, I mean, just to tell folks, you know, the absolute, uh, you know, to tell folks everything. So the, the way it worked in Syria is, uh, it was the parliament, which itself is democratically elected, uh, that vetted and, and, and approved the candidates. I think there were like 50 people who applied to be candidates in, in the presidency, mm-hmm. including some women for the first time. And the parliament decided that the three people who ran were the ones who could run. Okay, so there's a vetting process. But what I would argue is um, it's really no different than in the U.S. where candidates are vetted by their parties. Um, You cannot ultimately stand in the general election unless you meet certain criteria. First, you generally have to be rich. And also, you know, if you're a Bernie Sanders or a Tulsi Gabbard who question the wars, who want Medicare for all, that party, uh, the Democratic Party in this case, will make sure you do not make it to the finish line. And they, they do that. They did it to Bernie twice. 
and they, that's how it works in our in our system. So there's a vetting process here too. Um, but it needs to be said also that I think Syria is in a process of democratization. Right, this is only the second election in their history where they had a contested election. Right, usually it's um, essentially a plebiscitary vote where you have one candidate and you can say yay or nay. Right, this is the second time though they they had three candidates you could pick, and I think they're step by step moving towards a more democratic system. You know, and 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 why should we begrudge them that fact? Right. That they're, they're slowly mo- moving towards democracy. You know, do we forget the fact that when our great democracy began in 1789, that women couldn't vote, slaves couldn't vote, Native Americans couldn't vote, non-landowners couldn't vote? I mean, very few people could vote. And then when, you know, black people were technically given the vote after 1865 – They were effectively kept out of voting uh, by Jim Crow laws and various other means, poll taxes, all sorts of things. Women didn't get the vote till 1918, right? So the point is every country has its path towards its own development, towards democratization. Um, That has to be respected. And, 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 and by the way, again, uh, occupying a third of this serious country, uh, which the U.S. is doing, does not support democracy. By the way, as I understood it, in that one third that the U.S. is occupying, people were not allowed to vote. Okay? So the U.S. is not helping move Syria towards democracy. It doesn't care about that. It, it, you know, if it cared about that, its best friend in the Muslim world uh, would not be Saudi Arabia, which is a monarchy, right? Um, so, yeah, anyway, um, what I see in Syria is an attempt to at progress and moving forward, and people support this. Given that, we should support that. And again, Bombing a country, supporting terrorists in a country, sanctioning a country, destroying its economy, which again, the U.S. is doing all those things to Syria, does not promote democracy, and it's not intended to. Absolutely. And, um, you know, going off of the point of if the United States truly cared about democracy in Syria, why then would it be occupying uh, a third of the country, the most oil-rich and the most water resource-rich region in the country, um, and also using banned chemical weapons on civilians, arming by the CIA, by the Pentagon, um, you know, these right-wing groups that are pushing a very political Wahhabist um, ideology onto these people that are using it to control. It's, it's all about control. And this is really just a microcosm. And I say microcosm because this is taking place in so many different countries around the world and in Africa, um, you know, in in Yemen, for example. But Syria really is a microcosm of like this neoliberal foreign policy that supports um, these very right-wing groups like we saw in Ukraine, like we saw in Libya, 
Libya, where right now uh, people are being sold openly on the streets as slaves. Yeah, that's what Obama did. That was his great accomplishment. That was Obama's biggest accomplishment, absolutely. Um, But we don't talk about why these countries are being targeted. They're resource rich. The leaders are moving, you know, moving the countries in this democratic process, like you like you said, and it's just not okay to Western interests. And of course, war is business, you know, good business for these Western powers. Well, absolutely, war war makes money, right? Uh, but also, again, is is I've you know, as time has gone on, and I've I've seen what's been happening, and I've thought about this. You know, again, in Libya is the great example. First of all, I have, you know, if people don't know this, at the time NATO began bombing Libya, Saif Gaddafi, Muammar's son, was working with the International Democratic Institute out of Washington, D.C. to create a constitution, a democratic constitution for Libya, okay? Again, Libya was in the process of trying to democratize. Right. At the time, we destroyed their country. And as you said, with the result being black people being sold for about 400 bucks a pop as slaves in Libya. Um, the U.S. is destroying every secular state that exists in the Middle East. It's been doing it for a long time, right? Um, the beginning certainly with Nasser in Egypt, but even before that. Um, and, um, it's been partnering with right-wing jihadists, certainly since mid-1979, when it began backing the Mujahideen in Afghanistan, right? One of the leaders being Osama bin Laden. So it's been the U.S. that's been terrorizing (laughs) the Middle East and the world, right, for, for decades in the name of fighting terrorism, which is just... Again, Orwellian stuff we're talking about, right. <clears throat> and and destroying whole nations. I mean that, that we have to admit that the result of all these wars is complete devastation of countries if, if if the U.S. succeeds. In my own view, so during the Vietnam War, um, I think it was Lyndon Baines Johnson who said that he would you know like to see Vietnam become a parking lot. He literally said that. I believe that the U.S. would be happy if 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 the whole Middle East was a parking lot, uh, maybe with an airport and a giant McDonald's next to it. But I mean, they don't want functioning states. It's not just that they, they don't want democratic states or secular states. They don't want any states. They want chaos. Chaos. Yeah. Chaos. Yeah. Yeah, we are the merchants of chaos. Right. This is a nihilistic project. I I just want to emphasize that. I, again, after years, I'm 53 years old. It's taken me many years to come to this conclusion that that's that's what this is about, and it's horrible. It's horrible. We are absolutely living a modern day colonial nightmare. Um, And yeah. yeah, At least the old colonial powers, you know, they build a road, they they build, <laughs> right? It's like the Monty Python. What what the Romans ever did for us? Well, they built the aqueducts, you know, aside from the aqueduct. You know, they did build some stuff. Now we don't even bother building anything. All we do is tear things down. And, you know, that, that 
that brings up another point because like, you know, I just, I just watched this video of like, um, of Aaron Mate in Duma and like behind him is like this completely destroyed building, buildings, like leveled, brought to rubble. Yeah. Uh, these are the kinds of images that we see out of Gaza. And you just described a little bit ago um, that every city you go to that has been occupied uh, by these right-wing jihadists um, from the Free Syrian Army to the to ISIS, to Al-Nusra Front, whatever it may be, that's how those cities look. And I'm just curious to know, how does Syria plan on rebuilding, especially amid these sanctions? Can you talk a little bit about... Um, you know, the effects of sanctions on the country and how Syria plans to rebuild if it's possible. Well, look, there are signs of some rebuilding, but I must say not a lot of signs. I mean, they don't have, they've been, the economy's collapsed largely. Um, the currency is, is is nearly valueless. I think it's 2,500 pounds, Syrian pounds to the dollar now. And that's the official rate. The unofficial is like 5,000 or something like that. Um, they are being denied the most basic um, necessities of food, of medicine, certainly of, of, of building supplies. Um, again, as, you, as we've talked about, the U.S. is occupying the most oil-rich land in, in Syria, meaning that they're being denied their own fuel. Um, so they are trying to rebuild, but it is, I mean, they can't until these sanctions are lifted. And frankly, the world, all the countries we mentioned, um, should be giving money to help them reconstruct. It's not just about like letting them, you know, withdrawing sanctions so they could rebuild on their own. They are owed a war debt by these countries. Interesting. Um, yeah, we're debt. Yeah. yeah, Saudi Arabia again, Qatar, UAE, Israel, the United States, Turkey. They should all be. They should be in there helping rebuild. I mean, that if there was a just world, it's not a just world. I don't see that happening. Maybe Saudi Arabia will give some money. That I guess relations are starting to reopen uh, there. But right now, it's a very difficult time because um you know again these cities are in shambles and what that you know these what you see are these huge concrete buildings where people used to live they're just all shelled out they're all you know practically rubble except for the outline of them they're all gonna have to be taken down i mean you're just gonna have to level them you can't rebuild those buildings right um it's gonna be a massive project of, of demolition, getting rid of, 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 of the ruins and, and rebuilding. And uh, I think right now, Syria, uh, you know, they have, they're, they're trying to find a way to do that. But it's with the sanctions and the isolation, it's very difficult. I mean, just so, you know, people understand, like we didn't fly to Damascus. They have an airport. But there's virtually no airlines flying there. We had to fly to Beirut and drive. It's about a two-hour drive if you're not, you know, but that doesn't take into account. You have to go through the Lebanese customs on the way out. You got to go through the Syrian customs on the way in. It took us a good four hours to get 
to from Beirut to Damascus, very few people are going to do that, right? So their tourism in, industry also, which was big, because Syria is an amazing country. I should say it was much more amazing before the war. It's still amazing. Um, but they, who's going to go to Syria for tourism? I mean, every, they, they, their future is, is precarious, you know, until, until this, this economic strangulation ends. And you know what, Dan, that's so crazy is that, you know, during the Iraq war, we saw people like Madeleine Albright justify sanctions against Iraq, um, which led to the death of over 500,000 uh, children. And she said it was worth it. And then we had, uh, an, you know, at that time, people on the left and progressives and, you know, so-called human rights advocates were appalled by that. They thought, that's crazy. How could we have allowed that to happen? And then next thing we knew, when this humanitarian war was sold uh, to Americans and a lot of Muslims and a lot of Arabs too that fell for this uh, humanitarian narrative, we saw uh, people in America advocating for a no-fly zone, advocating and even lobbying the U.S. government um, for sanctions against Syria, including CARE, which is the Center for American Islamic Relations. I mean, the amount of propaganda that was spewed under the Obama administration by, uh, you know, by the Obama administration politicians, and then also by the mainstream corporate media that were working hand in hand with weapons manufacturers and the think tanks that were basically drafting up this war policy uh, for the United States to uh, go to war with Syria. I mean, it was just insane, insane to watch. Um, how have you seen this? I mean, how do we how, how do you see the, the, the narrative shifting with people on the left? Do you see them kind of railing in now or do you see them still kind of falling for these humanitarian war narratives? Do you see it? Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, let's be clear that it, it's been the liberals and many people on the left who've been the most gullible in terms of humanitarian interventionism because it's been being pushed by liberals. Right. This is a liberal narrative. <laughs> Right. This is Hillary Clinton. This is Samantha Power. This is Susan Rice. These are the these are liberals. They are pushing this idea. The Republicans, at least, are honest. They don't claim to be doing things for humanitarianism. They're very clear. We're there for the oil. Trump was very honest. We're in Syria for the oil. That's a terrible fact, but at least he was honest about it. You know, so the liberals, who at least are, you know, goodly hearted. Although, uh, as you know, uh, uh, the great late Lou Reed used to sing, "The goodly hearted made lampshades and soap," you know, referring to the Nazis. But um, they're goodly hearted, so they don't—they need a better rationale. So they're the ones that eat up the humanitarian intervention nonsense. So, for example, even Democracy Now! and Amy Goodman supported the uh, the Libya invasion and have been softly supporting intervention in Syria. So the only way to – we have to destroy that humanitarian interventionist narrative. That is you know, something, honestly, in my writings that I've dedicated myself to. We have to show it for the lie that it is because people keep buying it. it. I mean what happens is we go to war in Iraq, and we're told it's because of weapons of mass destruction, and then we find out, though most of us, you know, between us, you know, uh, folks here, most of us knew it was a lie to begin with, but people who didn't would later find out it was a lie, right? Most people now, 
know it was a lie, right? But then when Obama wants to go to Libya, it's like, oh, well, I know we were lied to then, but we couldn't be lied to now. Well, now we know that was a lie. But every new intervention, people... It's a cycle. It's a cycle. Yeah. We, don't, we don't remember the last time. You know, it's, it's, it's like, uh, you know, Gore Vidal said, it, the U.S. is the, you know, United States of amnesia. And we have to, 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 you know, to help people remember and understand that this is a big lie. This is probably the most effective lie ever told. I mean, I mean, really, the most effective yeah. and awful lie ever told. And we need to dismantle that. Absolutely. And I think one of the, you know, the biggest lies that came out of this conflict that was, you know, as a Muslim, seeing many Muslims also fall for this narrative is that sectarian narrative um, that, uh, you know, this is a sectarian civil war. And and that, I think, has been the most unfortunate thing because it just plays into uh, the Western narrative that Iran uh, is trying, you know, is the largest exporter of terrorism in the Middle East when it's really Saudi Arabia who's the largest exporter of terrorism in the Middle East. And of course, that would not be possible without massive, massive, massive arms sales um, by the United States um, that ends up in the hands of these terror groups. Um, Dan, tell us about your latest books before we let you go so that and where people can find them. Yeah, well, the, I mean, the most relevant book that I want to call people's attention to re relates to what we're talking about. It's called No More War. How, yeah. Oh, please. Yeah, please show our audience. Um, no more war. How the West uses humanitarian <laughs> interventionism to uh, uh, to violate uh, law and advance its economic and strategic interests. That's a mouthful, but that's the book that I would like people uh, to, today to go out and get. You can get it anywhere. You can get it on Amazon, Barnes and Noble. Get it from your local bookstore if they don't have it. They'll order it for you. But that's that's the book of the day, I think. Incredible, uh, incredible book. Absolutely. Go ahead. Yeah, and also I write for RT News. I'm proud of that. Um, I have a new article up on RT about the Syria elections, and I'm on Facebook and Twitter. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Dan Kovalik, for joining us today. Human rights lawyer and election observer. Always a pleasure speaking. I think I think if we didn't have a time limit, you and I could probably keep going for like five hours. <laughs> Absolutely. It was a lot of fun. Uh, I look forward to next time. Thank you so much, Dan.